much, Joe. Um, and uh, for those who didn't know, I was fortunate to learn my, um, my, my business skills from Joe uh, as uh, working under him for a couple of years. And so I'll be uh, so I'm fortunate to have brought, brought um, that level head of this with me today. And I've, um, uh, but I, and I'd also like to not acknowledge the other large gym, uh, Joe and Dr. Campbell Rankin, two large gym boards in my, um, in my career. And, and a lot of what we're talking about today um, is uh, I will tribute to Dr. Rankin. We will be seeing his views and perhaps debating them. Um, I know that some people disagree with them, and, and I know that one of who, uh, uh, Dr. Laura, she's not here. Um, and last time I talked to spoke with this, we had as a nice to and fro in the audience. Um, he's in chambers at the moment, so I'll be spared that. However, if anyone else would like to uh, interject, um, heckle, maybe not heckle, uh, or um, uh, ask questions, please feel free. I'm happy to go off on um, any tangents. So, we're going to start with some really basic material. And the reason why um, we were built to, and the importance of absolute core trust law, is tested and will flow through all of the tax implications that we'll talk about and all of the things that we can build with it. Now my father's a toolmaker and I spent part of my youth in a tool room and so when we talk about we can use trusts like iron and we can um, twist them and, 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 and warp them like iron and, and essentially build anything out of there. I'm quite firmly of that belief. So, So, um, first of all, then I'm going to talk about um, absolute entitlement. So, the, the simplest of trusts we could have is where a trustee, T1, holds some trust property, we have black acre and white acre, for the benefit of a beneficiary. If they hold it absolutely, the, the beneficiary can call for the trust to vest at any time, as we know from Prozor Report from Saunders of Voltier. Beneficiary can appoint and direct the trustee. They are absolutely entitled um, to the income from the trust for tax law purposes. Um, but even in this simplest and most basic of trusts, it might not be the case that the beneficiary is absolutely entitled to the assets at all times. And this depends on the trustee's right of indemnity. So, so if the trustee has, it is purely in a passive aspect here, that they hold black acre and white acre, there's no debts, doesn't trade, um, uh, the indemnity would be limited such that there would be an absolute entitlement to the, to the assets. But if there is not, if there, if there is um, a mortgage or there, if this is some kind of uh, trading trust, and there is the likelihood or possibility of assets uh, or, or, or debts arising, then the trustee will have a right of indemnity and the, the beneficiary cannot be absolutely entitled to the asset until that right of indemnity is satisfied. Now, the ATO in, 
in uh, a tax ruling that it's had in draft form since 2004, has struggled with the concept of absolute entitlement. It's, that's its views. It's now 14 years in draft and, uh, and still unsettled. Um, and that the ATO would hold that there is potentially an E5 event, that is a CGT event um, from, a from a beneficiary becoming absolutely entitled. So if we had a trustee has a right of indemnity and then that goes away, suddenly there's CGT, notwithstanding that they've been entitled to it the whole time. And probably they would ignore that in the case of a simple trust. But this principle is very important as soon as we get into something slightly more complex. So, basic trust from two. Now we have a slightly less simple trust and there are two beneficiaries who, are, who have an absolute entitlement to all of the income from black paper and white paper. Now, one of the beneficiaries cannot alone call for the vesting of the trust. And whether they can, call, uh, besides the right of indemnity, um, holding them, um, uh, calling upon the trustee to marshal the assets to meet their, their rights as beneficiaries, their entitlement will depend upon the nature of the assets themselves, whether the assets are fungible. So if there were two beneficiaries and but one property, and they say, I want the, the trustee to distribute this to me. Well, how could that happen? Now, now maybe the trustee has to um, uh, issue to them jointly. Uh, if, uh, if there was a thousand BHP shares, it would be quite simple. It would be, they would be held equally for them. Um, it also depends on the intention of the trust. Is, is the trust set up such that the, the beneficiaries are intended to be able to call for the uh, particular assets, or is, the, or is it drafted into the nature of the trust that, it, that is intended to continue? Now, when we draw our trusts or print off our debtor trustees or, or write that in, in a will that we shall hold something on trust for someone, kind of skip over these and then set up a trust uh, we, that we uh, often uh, will have a lot of complex uh, circumstances and um, and these will depend on these very minutiae. Now the power of appointment in this trust, of course, would lie with beneficiary one and two. Um, of course, we could separate out that power of appointment, but by default it would be with them. Still in basic trusts. So now we have a basic trust um, and we have black acre Beneficiary one is absolutely entitled to the income from Blackacre and beneficiary two from Whiteacre. Now, we're only slightly more advanced than the previous step, but how many trusts are there? So if we're, um, so, so this is not uncommon to arise in an estate. There will be one, um, uh, one trust estate, or it's, a, it's, a, one, it's a type of trust, um, uh, when the administration starts. As the administration starts, it's like uncovering dinosaur bones. There has been trusts, you know, a trust left for child one and child two. And those trusts were always there. And as you administer the estate, you, um, you uncover them. Have you created two trusts? You start off with one, and now there's two or multiples. Now, 
Um, the case of Livingston would hold that you don't. Um, uh, Reuben Edwards, the 1989 case, um, considers the difference between there being a, a settlement and, and a trust estate and, and holds that you can have multiple trusts, um, that you can create different estates, trust estates, without necessarily settling them, having a different settlement. Now, obviously, I could set out and say, I hold um, Blackacre on trust for Beneficiary 1 and Whiteacre on trust for Beneficiary 2 and declare two different settlements, of course. Um, or I could start off with one trust equally for both of them and then declare it separately. Um, and, if, and each of these will have, will treat CGT, potentially stamp duty, if it's on real property in South Australia. Um, but if we have it built into the mechanism of the trust and it, and it, and it happens um, somehow, then there is no CGT. Uh, there, is, there is no creation of a new trust, even though we end up with multiples. And these, these, these concepts lead us to, to go, what can we do with trusts? We can build them to automatically do this. Now, what happens with the right of indemnity? The right of indemnity against a trustee may or may not be separate, depending on how you draw it. Um, and uh, so you want to be careful to make sure that um, uh, beneficiary one cannot cause some kind of loss um, that affects beneficiary two. Now, still, in very simple things. Um, new trustee, version one. So what we're going to do is we're going to do, we start off with trustee one, and now we're going to do the most basic thing we could do, and that is add a second trustee. Now let's run through the principles. Is this still the same trust? Yes, it's continuing <coughs> on, it hasn't stopped. Are the rights the beneficiary has against the trustee the same? Yes, it, it must be. Um, there is an express exemption in 71.5D. Um, now, in capital gains tax, Not split. So, the no new trust view. 
So upon the change of trustee, it holds that. It looks first to see whether, whether or not any resettlement has occurred. And if in the opinion it has, then states a conclusion that a new trust has arisen. So we're going to, we might look at the substratum of the trust, we might look at the, at the uh, relationships, the continuum of, of the trust. Some of the, um, now I must admit, this is the majority view um, uh, of, of commentators. Uh, this is not my view, but this is the, this is the uh, majority view. Now I'm going to try and, and, and challenge it. The no new trust view holds that on a change of trustee, there is no new trust. Um, do you need to have a settlement to create a trust? Well, obviously, there's no settlement on a testamentary trust. Um, the typical argument in favour of the new trust view is, is Ruben Edwards, um, and we're, we're talked about there being multiple trust estates which triggered um, CGT, but that was about separate estates and, not, and, and has a different question to what we have in Australian capital gains tax, which is, is there a settlement? Which is very broad, um, um, but it should not be confused with the UK CGT, which considers whether there is two or more trust estates. So in Ruben Edwards, they said, uh, but when is a settlement a separate settlement? There are a number of obvious indicia which may help to show whether a settlement or a settlement separate from another exists. One might expect to find separate and defined property, separate trusts and separate trustees. One might also expect to find a separate disposition bringing the separate settlement into existence. These indicia may be helpful, but they are not decisive. For example, a single disposition, e.g. a will with a single set of trustees, may create what are clearly separate settlements relating to different properties in favour of different beneficiaries and conversely separate trusts may arise in what is clearly a single settlement when the settled property is divided into shares. So the test of is there a settlement or not is not what defines whether there is a new trust. Adrian, can I interrupt you? Please do. And ask you a question. Yes. For this purpose, what is a settlement? It's an interesting notion to me that a will giving a piece of property to a trustee is a settlement. But yeah. I'm inferring from this quote that at least in Ruben Edwards it's thought to be a settlement. Well, no, no, in particular what we're looking at is, um, so a, a will could be a settlement, but out of a will you might devise a number of trusts. And so let's, um, and so if the will is the settlement, there is but one settlement, because you can only die once, uh, unfortunately. Um, but you, um, but you might set up in your will trusts for, for ten or so beneficiaries, and so it, and, and at the time of your death there will be but one trust estate, um, and as it becomes administered, those ten different um, estates will come out, but none of them have been separately settled. Does a settlement therefore mean, for this purpose, a transfer of property to a trustee? Uh, a settlement is, um, uh, is uh, I would say it's a circular definition. Um, it's what, um, so, so, you, so there are certain things that are clearly a settlement. And then there is an expanded set of terms which, which uh, encompass what is a settlement. 
So um, I could settle a trust. I could say I'm going to put ten dollars on trust. I could um, have a, 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 a settlement that comes out of my um, uh, out of my will. I could resettle a property. Um, and again, this um, but what actually constitutes a uh, a settlement or a resettlement is um, it, it goes around in a circle. Is, um, is your, sorry, yes. Perhaps your point is that as it passes from administration, as the uh, as you pass from administration to set up, setting up the testamentary trust, that that is that is a separate settlement. Is that is that your point? Well, uh, really, my point is much much more basic one, Joe. What is a settlement? And if I think in terms of the creation of an intervivors trust, then somebody, a set law, will normally pay an amount of money to somebody to be the trustee, and there is the settlement. Um, now, when I then see on the screen the notion of a settlement created by a, a will, I, I start to wonder whether I'm right when I think in terms of a, what a settlement is, which I think is probably the transfer of some property to a trustee to hold on trust. And if that's so, well then, yes, it can work by way of a will. If, if I'm wrong in my definition of settlement, well then, I, I, I've lost Adrian. <laughs> but uh, my, my, my evasiveness in answering this is because <coughs> I agree with the no new trust view. I, I follow Campbell's view of the new trust view, uh, and which I think has a much clearer definition of what constitutes a settlement and a resettlement. And I think we're on the next slide. Well, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, um, and, and so I will set out what my view is, and the reason, and um, and while I'm trying to set out the, 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 the no new trust for use definition of a settlement, um, I, in my view it's circular and I think it's problematic. Others might be able to, to set it out. I'm trying to set it out as a, as a, as a steel man argument in that I've set it out as best as I can, I'm, but, I'm, but I uh, admit in my heart that I'm not convinced by it. Um, so uh, the no new trust view, the problems with that um, so you can have trusts without a settlement or a resettlement. Um, and so if you're trying to say a settlement is the thing that creates a trust, well, we can clearly see that we can create trusts without a settlement. So it can't be the thing that creates a trust. Um, in the uh, full court case of uh, Clark against the commissioner, where it sets out what constitutes a resettlement in the case of a unit trust and talked about a continuum, um, um, it, this is, and it says that if you um, change the continuum of the trust, its constitution, its property, and its membership, then you will resettle the trust. And they will, but, but in Clark, they were not saying that this is the only way in which you can resettle a trust, because you, you could quite um, simply say, I resettle a trust for this on this exact same constitution, property, and membership. So um, the no new trust view cannot rely entirely on Clark. Um, because it's not conclusive. And the Charter of Rights and Obligations cases such as um, Rebal Settlement, um, uh, Mazarine was the one that um, I was picked on last time with, and, uh, uh, and that falls into that, this, this set of cases. There are a bunch of early cases from late 1800s and early 1900s that, that look even at a simple relationship and say, 
uh, a change in the charter of rights and obligations constitutes a change in the trust relationship that um, uh, uh, sorry, constitutes a, a resettlement or a new settlement, they don't consider the trust relationship being the relationship between the trustee and beneficiary. Again, I admit this is the majority commentator view. So now I talk of the new trust view. Now, um, this is my own invention, this, uh, this analogy of a starfish. Now, I'm not sure if you know that if you take a starfish and you cut it in twain, like this, you will end up with two starfish, both of which are the original. The starfish will regrow its remaining limbs. When it starts off, it had six, and now it's, there's two starfish with three. In six months' time, you'll have two starfish which have, which have six limbs. So, this, and that, that is in essence how the new trust view works. So the new trust view looks at the impersonal rights of the trustee. Um, now I can see someone taking photos. If you, um, I will uh, send out these slides and I have a paper that I'm um, uh, just formatting uh, and will send out, as, send out as well. So they will be uh, emailed out to you by the uh, uh, forum organisers. So in the new trust view, we look at and the test is the impersonal rights. So uh, as we know, a, a trust is a relationship between the trustee and the beneficiary. And if, and that is, a, and, the, and the trustee is impressed with the trust obligations upon them. If you change the trustee, then you change the trust. You have resettled. And that is what I would suggest constitutes a settlement or resettlement. A change in either of those. So of course you can do it by changing the, the continuum, but if you change that fundamental relationship between the trustee and the beneficiary, it's an impersonal rights, it's, it, it's changed. Just as if you have a, um, a, a relationship between uh, a lawyer and a client, you change the lawyer, you've got a brand new relationship, don't you? Um, I suggest that um, this is uh, envisaged by um, sections 14A2 and 14A of the Trustee Act, envisage that you can have multiple, that um, you can create multiple trusts or you can appoint different trustees um, to, the, to one trust and it will create new trusts out of, out of one. And that every time you cha change trustee or appoint a new trustee, it will resettlement. It, it will cause a resettlement. So that is the simple answer. A change in trustees is, is a resettlement under the new trust view. And that is my simple answer. And we, something that doesn't seem to be picked up by commentators generally, but is known to us in South Australia, is that we have a South Australian case um, on this, uh, uh, Diver, where it was uh, expressly said they reject the notion of the appellate, oh, sorry, where there was a trust split in this, and we'll go come to trust splitting shortly, um, reject the contention that the uh, alternative acquisition of a, a, a complex tax scheme resulted in uh, splitting of a trust into two identical copies. On the contrary, the, the split trust is a new one carved from the progenitor trust. It has a different trustee, it has different property, the nature of the trust obligation has changed. The beneficial interest of the unit holders has changed. No, no clearer could there be a statement in support of the new trust view. So, what does that mean? Um, uh, so, generally, it's been fine 
with the um, that the new trust view can exist because there are specific exemptions in, say, 715D of the Stamp Duties Act that says a change in trustee doesn't trigger stamp duty. So it doesn't matter whether it's a change, whether it um, resettles it or causes a change in trust, it's, it's fine. Um, so then it matters for settlement or declaration. Uh, so, so now we come back to what constitutes a settlement. In the ATO's view, historically, they have said E1 needs a settlement or declaration, so it, it doesn't matter. Uh, it'll be fine on a change of trustee. E2, you need you're transferring from a, from one trust to an existing trust. That's fine. In CGT event A1, which is one transfer from one, uh, from one person to another, um, there's no express exemption. And then so relying, and so then you end up into a circular argument of that there's uh, it's you don't trigger A1 if it's a new trust, and it's if it's a new, it's not a new trust if you don't trigger A1. Um, so it's 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 circular. The no new trust view, you would look to the bed, I would suggest what you test is you look to the beneficiary's interest. And so, um, uh, and, and Blackwell is a high court authority for this. Now where we have some great fun is that uh, halfway through last year, the ATO put out TB 2018 D3. Um, and they've ostensibly tried to attack trust splitting, which is the starfishing, creating two trusts out of one. Um, because they generally don't like things that are fun. Um, no, no, not things. Um, but, um, but what I find interesting is that, in my view, in my reading of this, they have adopted the new trust view. And if the ATO have adopted the new trust view, they have turned every single change of trustee into a resettlement the CGT event. <laughs> so now I've got to say I don't think they're going to they're going to apply that um, and because that would be calamitous. What I think in, will ha happen instead, they so they've sat on TD 2018 D3 for some time. They've had a lot of angry com um, feedback from 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 the majority of commentators who follow the no new trust view because because they seem to have adopted the new trust view. I've pointed out to them that um, I say, this is great. I I'm glad that you agree with me. You've, you're going to uh, 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 hit a whole bunch of things you didn't intend. And um, so they've, they've got a lot of thinking to do. I don't think they're going to apply it, but they have to do a lot of wiggling and, and revise their argument. So they may, in fact, do a backflip or um, they may just come up with something nonsensical. And where this leaves us with a problem is if the ATO has some like hadn't actually adopted a clear view one way or the other, it would be easier for us to do things. Now we're going to talk about some things we can do. Um, oh, so, uh, I don't think that the new trust view, that, that we create a new trust if we do this. If first we appoint trustee two, that is step one. At that time, there is two that there is the same trust, and then we remove trustee one. Then there is a um, uh, that the trust is obviously continued. I think, for, I think for CGT purposes, you would not trigger a change in trustee. You would not trigger trigger a settlement even under even if the ATO has adopted the new trust view. Uh, if you were doing this expressly to get around that, you'd have to consider part four a, uh, the anti-avoidance provision, which would be problematic.
Um, um, I just want to note that if you are doing any kind of change of trustees for the purpose of, uh, and you wish to make sure you get a statute exemption, there are three parts to it. Um, so you need to transfer for retirement or appointment for the new trustee. There must be no benefit to a trustee or another person. This is not something that will be typically enforced unless you're doing something complex um, or fun, um, and, uh, and then the, the revenue tends to be quite technical. Um, uh, be careful if you're if you have a clause in your in your deed that says a, um, a beneficiary who becomes a, tr a trustee can't be a beneficiary. Because if you say you set up a, a new company, typically it will be a beneficiary. And as soon as you um, uh, appoint its trustee, it's removed as a beneficiary. In which case there will be a detriment to a beneficiary. And this was considered in Dinah, um, and one of the reasons why the, the scheme failed. Um, and uh, and as an interesting note in Dida, in my reading of it, um, uh, it was held that a change in a trustee, appointor, and guardian constituted resettlement. Um, I don't think that's going to be followed. Um, but I just want to point that out there because that's, to my mind, something quite vanilla. So, of course, you could always resettle a trust. You could. Um, you could expressly say, I, I, have, I have resettled it, you could do it accidentally, you could do it to establish a cost base, you could resettle part of a trust on a new trust. This would be, this would cause CVT extension. Now I'm going to talk about some, we're going to pick apart trusts and, and, um, and the notion of a subtrust. There are about four or five different things that have been called subtrusts. I have taken it upon me to name them. The first of which is there is um, a chain of trusts. Uh, so, so here, so T1 holds Blackacre for T2, who holds that, that, that beneficial interest on trust 2 for B2. So ultimately everything is for the benefit of beneficial 2. Um, the ATO would say that you would look through and beneficiary 2 would have absolute entitlement to trust 1. But if um, if you have an active trustee, so if the powers of trustee 2 are in some way uh, that they have the ability to do things um, and make decisions, beneficiary 2 could not um, call for a winding up of trust 1. Only um, trustee 2 could. Um, now, uh, if you were to wind these up and so merge trust 1 into trust 2, then you would, um, it, uh, it's going to be an absolutely entitled transfer, so there's no, no going to be um, CGT. And these, these two estates, different trust estates, would merge. So, um, uh, now, one example of where this arises, just say I'm doing a change of trustee on the discretion of the trust, and the, tr and the trust owns intellectual property and also land. And I say that all of the that um, under change of trustee, all of the all of the property is owned by. Uh, it will be transferred immediately to the new trustee, being say trustee two. So the intellectual property transfers immediately. The land transfers only when it's registered. So for some time, you have this scenario. We have the land is held by trustee one, who must transfer it to trustee two. Who is holding it for the benefit of the of the trust, and so in this example, the the IP would be Whitehaven. 
Now, um, I was I had a client the other day who was trying to do some uh, succession planning, and uh, and they wanted to break up a trust and 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 come through the problem of having one trust controlled by two different people, and they originally wanted a trust split. Um, but I said, well, I'm sorry, you can't do that anymore. And they said, well, what happens? And I said, well, you could do this. You could change to a vanilla change of trustee um, and just leave one of the siblings in control of the first trust and the other, uh, the first trustee and the other sibling in control of the second trustee. Now then you would have to change some powers of appointorship and guardianship so they can control it. Um, but in that way, you can split this up and affect a quasi-trust split, um, but without uh, triggering um, CGT. Now, I also suggested that, um, given that this is a contentious issue, you would want to put it for a private ruling. Um, another type of subtrust um, that, that is called subtrust in, in various countries. Sorry, yes. you had soldiers and board here up there on the previous slide. What's yes. What's the relevance of? Yes, so, so beneficiary two cannot call for the, the winding up of trust one if trustee two is active. So if the trustee, um, even though this is a, a, a simple bare trust, um, if they have some kind of active duties to consider, then that they cannot call for a winding up of, of, of it. Even though you would say that they're absolutely entitled. Now if they, um, if this is just a, a simple custodian trustee who has no, no duties other than to hold it, um, then, then of course, uh, beneficiary two could wind up trust one or trust two. Now I know that, that, that a, a simple bare trustee could have significant powers. If we look at the the, the, the fund litigation around Gina Reinhardt's um, trust, she vested uh, um, uh, her trust, uh, a, a discretionary trust. Um, for, uh, I think it's four children, uh, who held this equally. Um, she remained, though, in control of the trustee. The trustee gets to exercise the voting power of the shares, which determines whether a dividend comes or not. So even though we had a, what we ended up with was a, a very simple bare trust, and there was no, there were, no, there was no CGT upon, upon that vesting, even though we had just a simple bare trust, the trustee reigns supreme. And this is the this is the classic debate of um, who is who is in control of the trust, the appointor or the trustee. The appointor is clearly not. The appointor is only the controller of a trust um, for two reasons. One, um, that the professionals who set up the trust will often say so, and um, uh, the the. the <laughs> That the accountant says the appointor is a controller, and the client says yes, of course, sure, and everyone acknowledges that. And then when they die, um, the, it turns out that the trustee has a lot of power. The appointor can appoint or remove the trustee, uh, trustee, um, but perhaps the trustee has the power to amend the trustee and remove the power of appointment. Perhaps that perhaps they can frustrate it in some way. And if they're going to litigate. Um, the, the trustee will draw upon the funds of the trust to litigate against the appointor, um, and um, and maybe they're successful or not, but they're certainly more powerful for that time. You should not assume that the, the appointor is the control of the trust. The other reason is because 
Um, the tax officers said that the, the trustees, that the appointor is often a control of the trust, which is probably not the best reason. So, um, umbrella trust. Here we have, um, uh, um, we, we have separated out two trusts, uh, or so two sub-trusts. So we have one class and, and another class. And in this example, they have identical sets of beneficiaries. Say so it's a, um, an ordinary discretionary trust for um, three, three potential beneficiaries. The, the, the same list on each side. Now, um, often under a power of appointment, we can say we will hold some set for a different set of trust, for um, on a sub-trust separately for um, some set of beneficiaries. So we could say in, in an estate planning context, so you can see where I'm talking about estate planning now, which is you know, what it's supposed to be about, um, is that uh, we could say I want black agent to go to one set of beneficiaries and white agent to go to another. So um, now we haven't created a new trust. It's still the same trustee. How do we control black acre and white acre? We can, we can use our power of appointment. We can appoint, we can say that um, beneficiary one has the power of appointment over black acre. And so if they wish to, they could appoint a new trustee, potentially resettling it um, under a, a trust split. Um, and, um, and they have the power of guardianship, the power of veto over what happens to black acre. Um, if there's no change in um, trustees, no change of beneficiaries, we will not have any problems with statute. Um, I know, though, it's important how you do this. Uh, in the case of Lamb and Kim, almost exactly this thing happened, but, but they declared it, and they said, we declare and we hold this separately on trust for a subset of the beneficiaries. Now, we come back to our question of what constitutes resettlement. An appointment, an exercise of a power of appointment can be a declaration. Um, and it is a special power of appointment that can do this. Uh, so, this can be done, but you need to be careful. It's the simple answer. Uh, now, I know that in this example, there will be a right of indemnity from the trustee across all the sub-trusts. So, that's going to be a problem for, for your estate uh, planning. Another one is, an, is what I'm going to call an absolute sub-trust. Uh, uh, and so, again, you exercise your power of appointment and you say that I'm going to hold this particular property, property on a separate fund for some beneficiaries. This happened in uh, the case of Oswald, and he said he declared that they held some, um, some shares um, in Borough Fertilizer absolutely for beneficiary one. Um, uh, interesting, because the trustee has a uh, right of indemnity against the trust assets, there was no absolute entitlement and then therefore no CGT then E5, um, but it already created a separate trust, so does E1. But I think that you can work your way between E1 and E5 and set up something like this, um, because there is a, if you're not declaring absolutely, you're not going to trigger E1. And if you're not, um, and if the trustee's right of indemnity still applies, then you're not going to trigger E5. So you could do this, um, you could do this without CGT. Um, I know that if you're giving a, um, an asset to a particular family uh, member, you, there is a statute exemptions. One more, um, and this is what I'm going to call the income subtrust. This is one that I don't like. Um, uh, a lot of this, uh, this is where, uh, so in a lot of trustees, 
uh, after IT uh, a tax ruling um, uh, was was set out, um, the, uh, the the commissioner said that um, he wants a particular clause in trust deeds, and he, and and people began putting this clause in there that said uh, until uh, income until paid to a beneficiary shall be held as a separate fund. Now I've I often poll the audiences. Has anyone ever seen an accountant um, declare income, not pay it immediately, and then say, now I'm going to account for it as a separate fund? I actually had one accountant once put their hand up. Um, I nearly fell off the stage. Um, but I don't know, just, has anyone ever seen an accountant uh, keep track of that? Uh, I haven't. Um, I have seen accountants keep track of um, uh, unpaid present entitlement subtrusts, which are effectively the same thing. Um, so they declare an unpaid present entitlement and hold it separately. I think they're terrible. If you've got this in your trustee, I've got some QC papers who suggest that it should be removed. I'm happy to forward the papers so you don't think you're just relying upon me. Um, uh, this, this has no benefit and it's never done in practice. And so you're just enabling people to um, breach their trustees. Of course, if you're a litigator, um, and you're looking for some, something that the trustee has done wrong, um, have a look at this in, in the trustee because it's, it's fairly common and the, almost no trustee follows it. So, uh, also, how can you declare a trust over income? Not a thing, it's a tax law concept. So, I'll claim stretch. So, now I'm going to talk about another um, uh, estate planning thing. So, we're trying to, um, from the estate planning perspective, what I see the difficulty with the discretionary trust is that it's not like a share or a unit or um, owning something individually. You've got this one amorphous blob and you typically have um, one blob owned by one founder and they'll have multiple children and how do you pass that blob on? So I do, um, So here is, here is another way. If we set up a, a, a trust, um, a, a class trust, we can set this up and say that uh, we can give pieces of control in the powers of the trust um, to particular people. So I could say I give to someone the right for, uh, I'm going to call this a distributor power, distributor power, to direct the trustee to make appointments of income or capital. So that's very strong clause. Obviously you're not going to want it for, for like it's not the best for an asset protection point of view. But it does give you control. And what that does mean is that you can have multiple people who hate each other in the same trust, controlling their one piece. So you, so if you give someone a distributor power, um, and then perhaps a guardian power, a power of veto over decisions of the uh, of the trustee, and then perhaps a power of appointment, so they, they can appoint and remove the trustee, but only into either a particular asset or, or a share. So here, 50% of the trust fund. You've got two children, one um, each of them have control over 50% of the trust fund. Um, then you can economic, you can create the same practical effect as one unit trust owned by multiple discretionary trusts, but all in the same trustee. It may be possible to take your existing um, single amorphous blob discretionary trust and convert it into something like this. Uh, now you're going to want to have. Your beneficiaries have some kind of relationship with each other. If they totally hate each other, well, I'm sorry, um, that's bad. They, um, this is probably not the structure for them. Um, but if they can work together, let's say I want to control the VHP shares and I want to control.
control the Rio Tinto shares, you can do this. Or I want to control Blackacre and its income and its investment decisions, and um, and you control Whiteacre. And uh, we we have one trustee that we're both directors of, and that we have, see the same accountant and um, get a trust return done at the end of each year. And I know that you're not going to try and play any games, but if you do play games, I have control of the trustee over my piece. And if the worst comes to the worst. I can always appoint a new trustee, accept potential tax consequences, take my bat and wall, and go home. You could also just also um, define this. So you should uh, um, this is this ideal thing for setting up in a will. So you, know, you have this for, um, for multiple generations. So um, generation two and three, uh, you define the class according to you could, um, uh, the most common things I've seen. One shares in the trustee. So you just simply change the shares in the trustee and each have. Uh, percentage based on that ownership interest, or two, um, per capita or per stirpes, um descendants. So that means if you have uh, three children, they each get a third. And if they have two children each, then they each get a tenth, and so on and so forth. And, and so it automatically devolves. Um, you can also in, um, create hybrid unit trusts that have asset protection that is that's locked to someone's bloodline. Um, you can lock this to a particular bloodline as well. Um, uh, there is uh, some uh, family law uh, cases that have discussed this. Um, um, one that's been successful on a particular bloodline trust. Um, and others that have been unsuccessful. Um, so when you're creating a class trust, you're not going to have separate assets. Um, you could also, uh, the other example to use this is that um, there is for the widow's home. You say, I'm going to give the widow I'm going to give you control over um, a power of guardianship over your home. You can you can veto it instead of creating a life interest and all the pain in the ass capital gains tax consequences um, with that. Just give them a right under the trust deed to control it. Um, it's a it's a superior right in my view to uh, to a life interest, and you don't have any tax consequences. And you can do it in you know in a couple of pieces of paper. It's quite simple. Now, um, recent case law, Aussie golfer. Uh, so, Aussie Golf came out at the end of last year. It, cons it considered a superannuation act um, and, the, and the sole purpose test. Essentially, what happened? Uh, so, if you have an asset in a super fund, for example, a house, you can you can um, uh, you can lease it out to someone unrelated, but you can't. But the commissioner has taken the view that if you lease it out to say your child, even at market rent, you're using a superannuation fund. For some other purpose, so to, yeah, to benefit your child. The first thing is the is the, the 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 court considered was that no, if you're leasing this out on an arm's length basis like that, um, you're meeting the sole purpose test. It's not going to cause problems with your super fund. That's fine. So that's that's great news, and that's probably why it's on appeal. Um, it, was, it was a full federal court case at the end of October last year, and um, so hopefully it uh, we get some special leave in the high court. Where it's interesting for today's purposes is that they can, um, so the trust was set up um, by a, com uh, a company that has an Adelaide that's called Domicon, and what they have is one huge trust that says it's going to manage hundreds of properties, and what they say is that each property, um, so uh, Joe joined at Domicon and he puts, um, he's, he finds a property, they're going to put it in this trust, but on a separate, uh, what they call a sub-trust for Joe's super fund. Um, and so essentially he controls it. 
Now, for all intents and purposes, each of these subtrusts was totally separate to the others. Um, there was no similar rights of indemnity, the beneficiaries were the same, the assets were not were chosen by the beneficiaries, they had total control of it, notwithstanding that they called this all one trust, I agree with the court that, um, with, uh, respectfully, that, that um, there was, uh, it was a separate trust. Um, and, um, and in which case it, this, this, goes, this reinforces what I was talking about earlier, that you can set up one trust that automatically sets out um, uh, separate sub-trusts. Um, there's been some discussion as to whether this, this goes against the, the new trust view. I don't think so. I think it's in support of it. Um, but yes, uh, so you can have a, uh, a sub-trust be a separate, separate trust. So now, homestretch, trust splitting. We talked about our starfish before. We can create a new trust. Trust, trust, uh, trust split is where trustee one retires from Whiteacre and trustee two retires from Blackacre. And so you end up with, in my view, a starfish split. Um, you'll have separate TFN, ABN, GST registrations. And, um, and now, under the Commissioner's view, this creates um, two trusts. Watch this space, it might, um, he might change his mind, um, he might not. Thank you. So, um, notwithstanding this, trusts that can still be useful, uh, you might, uh, for certain purposes, Revenue SA accepts it as not, having, as not triggering stamp duty. Um, if you're um, doing it for land tax purposes and you change beneficiaries, they generally don't. Um, if you're, um, I've, I've got a number approved and they've been happy with them, I've also had a number where they haven't been happy. Uh, so there's um, uh, so you might do that. You might split the trust um, and then uh, and then apply some kind um, some capital gains tax rollovers to deal with. So CGT would be your typical problem here. And then you end up. Um, I have seen a return to trust cloning, um, mainly because so trust cloning was you would create a separate trust that is has the same. Um, terms as the original, and there, up until 2005 or maybe 2007, um, there was a view that you could you could then transfer assets from one to the other without triggering CGT. That law was expressly was expressly amended so that you can't, um, but it didn't catch trust with it. Um, but notwithstanding that you're going to get hit with CGT um, on transfers from, from to, to what is clearly a new trust in the purpose of, for the purpose of um, estate planning and interdependence trusts, you might do this. You might um, a, wear the CGT because there are capital losses to offset. You might use the small business capital gains tax concessions. Um, there is now a, a small business rollover and also, there's a, a same asset a trust rollover. So, if it's the same trust uh, or a similar trust, and you're rolling an asset from one to another, um, you can um, avoid uh, CGT. Um, of course, you might not also be they might not call it CGT on all of the assets. Um, if there's trading stock that you're transferring in the ordinary course of business, um, uh, now and, and 
Uh, there has been a flurry of transfers of commercial property now that we no longer have stamp duty on it, moving it, moving it around into new entities so they are not aggregated for the purposes of land tax. Um, let's see how, how many years until things change yet again. Um, now obviously, unfortunately in South Australia, but not other states, um, moving businesses around in non-land holding it, um, units of shares don't contract stamp duty either. With that, I'm finished in our time. Thank <laughs> you.